Well, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Psalm 96. Uh, Psalm 96, as we continue uh, in the series that we have entitled Finding Purpose in the Psalms. And uh, before we get to Psalm 96, I want to um, remind you, maybe maybe it's a reminder, hopefully for, for many of you, although maybe not all of you are familiar with it, but uh, one of the darkest days in the history of the nation of Israel. Uh, it was a day when the armies of Israel went out to battle against their neighboring, um, their, their neighboring uh, tribes, the Philistines. These were really their, their arch enemies, their closest neighbor and their perpetual foe. And uh, they went out to battle on a certain day against the army of the Philistines. And the, the Israelites lost the battle. In fact, they were utterly defeated by the Philistines. And when they lost the battle, they lost something very important. The, the Israelites had taken into battle with them the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant was a, a wooden box that was overlaid with gold. And uh, it was that box that Moses had built or that Moses had built in the wilderness with the people. And the Ark of the Covenant contained some significant artifacts from their time in the wilderness. It contained the, the two stone tablets that had the Ten Commandments. It contained Aaron's rod, the, the, the rod that Aaron held that had budded uh, and produced almonds overnight uh, and uh, as a sign that God had chosen Aaron. And, uh, and, and there was a bowl of manna in there and some other things that they had put in there that God had told them to put in there. They had a few items in this box. And they, would, they took this out to battle. They lost the battle. And the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. It was taken out of the land of Israel to the land of the Philistines, and they kept it for a little while, but they had a lot of problems when they had the Ark of the Covenant with them. And they decided it was better for them not to keep it. And so they, they decided to send it back. And they sent it back into the land of Israel. And uh, they, they, it came back to the land of Israel, but it didn't immediately uh, get returned to the tabernacle uh, where... It had previously been located. It came to the the land of Israel and it actually spent several decades in the home of a faithful Israelite uh, family. And it was there that David, the king, after he had conquered the city of Jebus and turned it into the city of Jerusalem, David decided that it was time for the Ark of the Covenant to be moved to come into that a city of Jerusalem that was the capital city that God had chosen for Israel. And so David uh, brought the ark from the house of Obed-Edom to Jerusalem. And, and you have to picture what was going on that day. As David uh, brought the ark of the covenant up into Jerusalem, he led an incredible parade into the city. Think, uh, you know, World Series championship kind of parade. Ticker tape, uh, bands playing. I mean, this was a major procession. And the king was leading the way. David leading them in. And they're, they're coming into the city of Jerusalem. And you have to listen because you can hear as they're coming in. They're shouting at the top of their lungs. They're, they're, they're sounding trumpets. And not big brass trumpets, but ram's horn trumpets that they're sounding as they're marching into the city. There's cymbals that are crashing. There are harps that are playing. And people are singing songs and psalms glorifying God. They come into the temple or come into the city. And as they're entering the city and all of this noise and music is going on, David is there at the front of the procession. He is leading the people in rejoicing and he's dancing and he's whirling around and he's throwing his hands up in the air as he's praising God and rejoicing in the goodness of God as the Ark of the Covenant returns to the city of Jerusalem. 
They get the ark into the city. They bring it into the tabernacle. And the ark is finally restored to its rightful place inside the holy of holies, that holiest place inside the the middle of the tabernacle. This place where God meets with men. And when they get the the Ark of the Covenant there, David gives an instruction to the Levites. And he tells the Levites, those Levites whose job it was to do music, to make music in the temple, he tells them that they are to uh, sing a song of thanksgiving. Now, if, you, if we had time to turn there, we could look at 1 Chronicles 16, which is where this song of thanksgiving is recorded. Specifically, verses 8 through 36 of 1 Chronicles 16. But right in the middle of that song, from verses 23 to 33, we find there the source of Psalm 96. In fact, the majority of Psalm 96 is quoted word for word from 1 Chronicles 16. The song of thanksgiving on the day when the Ark of the Covenant came into Jerusalem. Psalm 96 is a song of praise for the coming of the King. Maybe it would be better described this way. It's described maybe more appropriately as a victory march. That's what Psalm 96 is. David was rejoicing. The ark was returning to the tabernacle. It was entering the city of Jerusalem. David was rejoicing and he was excited about that. But David also recognized that that event was a picture of something that was going to happen in the future when Messiah would come to reign as king over the earth. And so Psalm 96 really picks up that theme. And along with the next three psalms, from Psalm 96 to Psalm 99, uh, it uh, it kind of gives us the, the instruction here about how we are to exalt the Lord as King. And this psalm, along with the next three, kind of goes back and forth, on one hand, telling us that all of the nations and all of the earth are to sing praise to the Messiah, the King. And then on the other hand, it says that the people of God, the chosen people, the people who are committed to Him, are to sing this praise to Messiah, the King. And so there's this kind of back and forth, and we'll see that here over the next uh, several weeks. What we have in Psalm 96, in addition to that, of course, is the promise. And it's not just Psalm 96, but all throughout Scripture we have the promise of the coming of Jesus Christ, that He is going to come and He is going to return to the earth and rule as King. This was what His disciples were hoping for when He was here on earth with them the first time. Even as He was preparing to leave and go back to heaven in the book of Acts, His disciples asked Him, is now, is this the time when the kingdom is going to be restored? Is it finally time for you to be the king? And of course, Jesus instructed them that no, it was not the time and that the timing of it was not their problem. That was something God would take care of. But the promise, the promise of the kingdom, the promise of the king coming is the end to which this psalm points. It looks, uh, it looks ahead to that time when Messiah comes to rule as king. But the question, of course, is, all right, if the psalm is looking ahead to that time, what does it mean for us today? What's the point for us? Why does it matter for us today? Well, the psalm, I believe, gives us very clear instruction about how we ought to act in the here and now in light of the fact that He is coming someday. The question is, will we obey what God's Word teaches? It's always the question. Now the message this morning is primarily for those of you who here who are Christians. Those of you who have turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ who died for you and rose again. At the end of the psalm, I'm going to explain... Uh, how Psalm 96 applies to those of you who may not yet know Christ as your Savior. 
But I want to make very clear today that I'm primarily talking to those who are already born again. I want to start by reading Psalm 96. This is the king's victory march. Look with me there, verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Proclaim the good news of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His wonders among all peoples. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. He shall judge the peoples righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field be joyful in all that is in it. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord. For He is coming. For He is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with His truth. Let's pray and ask God's help and direction as we study His Word. Heavenly Father, again, we are thankful that we can open up our Bibles and we can read the Word of God. And we can know that this is the truth. As we talked about in Sunday school, we don't have to sit here and try to make it fit with the other things that we know. We don't have to try and make it fit with what this world tells us is true. We start with the Word of God. We start with Your truth that You have revealed. And we build our understanding around that. Well, that's our starting point. I pray that you'd help us today to begin there, to believe it and to trust your word and then to, to order our lives accordingly. Lord, I pray that you'd help me as I speak to be able to be clear in revealing what the Holy Spirit has for us today in your word. We'll give you the thanks for it. In Jesus' name, amen. The one thing you may have noticed as we read here is there's a lot of repetition in this psalm. You notice there, did you catch it? Verse 1 and 2, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Then you jump down to verse 7. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due His name. We have these repeated phrases over and over. Guess what? This is not an accident. You're supposed to pay attention to these things. In fact, in light of these repetitions, I've got two questions for you from the psalm. Two questions from Psalm 96. The first question is just this. Are you singing a new song to the Lord? Are you singing a new song to the Lord? But of course, we've got to ask, what does that mean? A new song. Some of you are already cringing. Uh-oh, we have to sing a new song. That means we can't sing uh, our, our favorite hymns, Right? We can't sing the old favorites. The pastor's going to say we've got to sing new songs. Maybe it means a new kind of song. What does that mean to sing a new song to the Lord? Well, the word new here means fresh or alive. It's a picture. Not, not of something new in time, exactly, but not old if you know what I mean. Not something new in time, but not old. The new song is fresh. It's it's fresh because it flows out of a living relationship. That's really what the point of this opening stanza is in verses 1 through 6. How is your relationship with God today? Are you really fellowshipping with Him on a daily basis? Is, there a, a, is your song that you're singing new and alive or has it grown old and stale? This opening stanza here, these opening six verses, it's really directed here at the people of God. Those who know Him by faith. Now I know in verse 1 it says to sing to the Lord all the earth, but the reasons 
that we are to sing here that are given are clearly assume that the singers in these opening verses know the Lord personally. This song is an expression of your relationship with the Lord. So the question is, is it new and is it fresh? That's important. Because when we're in living fellowship with God, when we're experiencing His love, when we're experiencing His grace on a regular basis, it affects our songs, our praises, how we sing and how we act about God. On the other hand, when our, when our fellowship with the Lord has been hindered by sin, sinful thoughts, words, or actions that haven't been confessed, sometimes it's not so much outright sin as we think of it. Sometimes it's just that we grow indifferent. We kind of get a callous on our hearts toward God and toward the things of God. And as a result of it, we don't sing the new song. In fact, th- this is, this is it's interesting because it, it kind of suggests the idea here that, that our songs reveal something about our hearts and our relationship with the Lord. You see, instead of singing a fresh and lively song to the Lord when, we, when we're not really in fellowship with Him, Instead of singing this fresh new song, if we sing it all, and sometimes people don't sing it all, because the heart's just not there to sing. But if we do sing it all, then oftentimes we can sing out of habit, kind of out of ritual, out of custom, rather than singing out of a love for God and out of a desire to lift up His name and to worship Him. I put it this way, and I think a lot of times our singing is like a spiritual barometer. You know what a barometer is, right? It, it represents the, the, the relative humidity of the air, how much moisture is in the air. It doesn't tell an exact number. The exact number is not that important of how much is in the air. That, that's not really relevant. It's much more significant about the trend. Is it going up or is it going down? When, when you use a barometer... Yeah, you can look at it, but looking at it at any one moment in time doesn't really tell you what's going on. It's what is it happening? Has it been going up or is it going down? And the forecaster uses that to tell whether the, you know, what, what's happening in the weather pattern. It's an indicator of something more. It, it tells us more information. And so that's the idea here that, that in the same way, the, the singing, the song that's in our hearts kind of indicates where we're at with God. The song that comes out of our mouth kind of indicates what our relationship with God is like. How it's going. Are we trending upwards, growing closer to Him, walking with Him in fellowship, or are we trending downwards? Are Are we drawing away from Him? Have we grown distant and indifferent and cold to Him? Is there some sin that's, that's hindering us? And so it's not easy to sing and we don't want to sing and maybe we will sing just out of custom or expectation, but it's not really our hearts alive with joy and excitement and fellowship with God. So even as we see this exhortation at the beginning of the psalm to sing a new song, I think there's more to it than just singing is really an opportunity for us to examine ourselves. Sing a new song, a fresh song to the Lord because you are in fellowship with Him. That's exactly what the psalmist is saying. If you look at the next couple of verses, he makes it clear. He invites all the world, the whole earth, to sing this song to the Lord. And he invites the people to bless His name. Bless the name of the Lord. What does it mean to bless God? That's kind of an interesting thought, by the way, because to bless suggests that there's something that we can give that's a benefit. Awful hard to imagine there's anything we can give to God that would benefit God. But but actually, here's he shows us in that verse, when he says in verse 2, sing to the Lord, bless His name. The very next line tells us what that means. 
How do we bless the name of the Lord? We proclaim the good news of His salvation from day to day. To bless the name of the Lord here means to preach the gospel. And when I say preach, I don't mean what I'm doing here right now. Although this should qualify and it's important for me to preach the gospel here. But preach, when I say that, means to proclaim, to declare, to tell others about the good news. It's an interesting expression. In the, in the New Testament, this word good news that's, that we find here in verse 2, the New Testament talks about the good news, and it's the word gospel. That's how this is translated when the Old Testament is translated in Greek. It's translated as the gospel. We are to proclaim the gospel of his salvation, the good news. And so when you speak to others and you tell them about God's salvation, you are blessing the name of Yahweh. You are exalting His name. You are magnifying the name of God. You are glorifying His name by preaching and proclaiming the good news of His salvation. That's how we bless His name. That's part of what He's talking about here. And of course, if you're telling someone about the good news of the salvation of the Lord... How can we not sing a fresh song? You see, if we're excited about sharing the good news of the gospel, the the, the salvation of God, that's kind of how we keep our song fresh and new and alive. Again, it has nothing to do with what the actual tune is, right? Whether it's an old favorite or brand new one. It's irrelevant. The point is, we in our hearts are rejoicing in the salvation of God so much that we want to tell others about it and therefore our songs reflect that. We are singing a new, a living, a fresh song to the Lord because our hearts are overjoyed at His salvation. Sing a new song to Yahweh. Bless his name by preaching the gospel. And notice he says to proclaim the good news day to day, from day to day. This is supposed to be an ongoing activity of praising and adoring and honoring and worshiping God for his salvation. Again, that's why you're supposed to be able to sing a fresh song today, even if you've been a Christian for decades. Even if you've been a believer since you were young and now you're old, the song you sing should still be fresh. It should still be living and new. Why? Because you're rejoicing in proclaiming the salvation of God. When you think about what God has done, when you think about who He is, when you think about what God is going to do in the future, when Christ returns, when Christ sits on His throne and rules the nation, how can you help but be amazed at His glory? How can your song be anything but new and fresh and living? See, it's all about our perspective here. What happens is the reason that we don't sing a new song is because we're not paying attention. We're not thinking about and glorying in and marveling in the wonderful salvation that we have from God. Because that should be enough to keep us singing a new and fresh song as many days as we live on this earth. The angels don't get tired of it. They sing it all day long, every day, and have since the beginning of creation. More than enough to keep our song fresh. I want you to notice too, though, here that the, the audience here for our preaching. So he says, we're to sing this new song and bless the name of God by proclaiming, by preaching the gospel, the good news of salvation. But notice, who are we supposed to proclaim this to? Well, he says there in the third verse, to the nations. And then if that's not descriptive enough, he says to all peoples. 
The first word, nations, in the Hebrew is the word goyim. It's a word for Gentiles. It's everybody. All of these people outside of Israel, they were supposed to proclaim this. All of the nations of the earth. And the second word is the word that refers to family groups, tribes or clans. It emphasizes the family relationships. All of the families of the earth. All of the peoples, all of the people groups, all the ethnicities and nations. All of them are supposed to hear the good news of the salvation of God. No one is to be left out. Everyone is to hear the good news of God's salvation. It's interesting there in verse 3. He says to declare His glory. That word declare means to, uh, to uh, list out or enumerate. Just think about it for a second. If you started trying to list out the glory of God and His wonders, how long would that take you? Would you ever exhaust the list? No. That's the point. Day after day. All the time. Continuously. We are to be singing and declaring and enumerating and proclaiming the goodness, the glory, the majesty, the wonder of God to all peoples. And so, again, as I said, I think this new song that we're supposed to sing, he's talking here to people who know the Lord. That's why I said this is focused on people who are already believers, already Christians. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've trusted in Him, then you need to be singing. And yes, I think that does mean you need to open your mouth and sing. But it's more than that. It's, all, it's talking about our heart too. And it needs to be our hearts that are, that are overflowing with love and joy for God and for His salvation. As we, as we meditate on that, as we remember what God has done and we look forward to what God is going to do and we think about what God is doing and we rejoice and we can't help but sing. And so the song is fresh. It's new. It's living. Now, in verses 4 through 6, he goes on here to explain why this is so important. Why is it that the nations need to hear about this God and His salvation? Well, look at what he says there in verses 4 through 6. The Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Let me summarize this for you very simply. He says this, and this is the point we've got to get. The gods of the nations are nothing. But Yahweh is supremely glorious. The gods of the nations are nothing. But Yahweh is supremely glorious. The Lord is great and greatly to be praised, here he says. When he says that Yahweh is great, it's an interesting expression because he, the, the word great is, it, it, what he means here is that he is the definition of greatness. The greatness or majesty of anything is measured or calculated only by comparing it to God. And when we compare that thing to God, we see just how great it is. Or isn't. Because he is great. He is greatly to be praised. That means he is wholly to be praised. There is nothing in him that is not praiseworthy. There is nothing in him that is mediocre or average. And certainly nothing that is inferior, weak, or corrupt. Every part of him, wholly through and through, praiseworthy. This is the, 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 the way that the psalmist presents the Lord here. The nations need to hear about this. The peoples, every group and every tribe across the globe needs to hear about this. He is completely and utterly above any standard of measurement or comparison. And then, of course, he does 
the logical next step the psalmist does is he takes this and he compares then the Lord to all of the gods, right? Because there are a lot of gods out there, aren't there? A lot of gods that people claim exist, a lot of gods that people worship, that they say they worship. And the psalmist says, well, let's compare then. The Lord, Yahweh, He is great. He is the definition of greatness and He is wholly praiseworthy. But let's look at these gods for a second. What do we find? Well, we find that all the gods of the peoples, and notice the language that he uses there in in verse 5. All the gods of the peoples. This is collective. This is extensive. No god is left out, right? Every god of every tribe of man anywhere on the earth is what? What does he say here? Help me out. What does he say? It's an idol. You might, when you read that, you might think, uh, yeah, is there something else you were going to say about that? Because we think of an idol, and we think an idol is a, it's a figure. It's, you know, it's a little figure that's carved out of wood or metal or stone or something. You know. It's not, well, duh. Okay, but that, that's not it. The, you need to understand the word idol here, when he says all the gods of the peoples are idols, that word idols means nothingness. All of the gods add up to nothing on their side of the scale. Add them all up. Every single one of them. They are nothingness. They have no substance. They don't even register on the scale. It doesn't move the needle a bit. That's what he says about all the gods of all the peoples. Now, this is important because it'd be very easy for us to sidestep this and say, well, we don't worship gods, so no problem. Um, we don't have idols in our homes, so no worries. But th- it's interesting, in Derek Kidner in his commentary in this psalm, he, I love the, what he calls these gods, right? He, here's the term that he uses. He says they are currently revered nonsense. Currently revered nonsense. I, I just love that expression. Right? What ideas today are currently revered? Right? What, what philosophies, what worldviews, what concepts, what ideas are currently revered today in our culture? Kidner says, these are the gods he's talking about. These things that are currently revered. Every culture and every place has some sort of current uh, fad idea or ideology. Some sort of theory or, or slogan or motto by which they live. This is their God. So in, if that's the case, then what are our gods today? What is the current revered nonsense in America? Well, I did some thinking about that this week, and I thought, you know, we have several mottos uh, in our society today. Um, we have the motto, in God we trust. It's on all of our all of our money, right? In God we trust. Does anybody think that that is actually the motto of America today? Anybody want to go on record and... No, nobody, nobody's willing to say that. We know better than that. No, that's not the motto of America. I mean, it might be stamped on our money, but that's not present in the hearts of very many Americans, is it? Okay, so that one's out. Um, how about this one? Oh, there's another motto, right? Out of many, one. E pluribus unum. I'm not really good at Latin, but that's the best I can give you. You're familiar with that one before. You've heard that before, haven't you? Of course, I don't know. How's that unity thing working out for everybody today? Um, it seems like, you know, what was happening about, what, eight, eight years ago in Madison is now happening everywhere, like all over the country from coast to coast. It's kind of just nuts. Um, yeah, the whole unity thing doesn't seem to be working out too high. I'm not sure that's a good motto, um, but that's really an appropriate model. Here's one. Maybe this is a better one for our, today's culture. If it feels good, you know, okay, but in fairness, that, that's really a, a last century motto. That's not really a motto for today. I mean, that's been around for a while. I, I'd say maybe not so much today's motto. Um, I, I came across um, uh, 
a couple of other interesting ones. How about this? There's no place like Facebook. That sounds like the last decade. So we're getting closer. Like we're not quite here yet, you know. Um, just tweet it. I don't, I don't know. That's, that's getting closer, better. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's, can you hear me now? Or you deserve a break today. I, I don't know. The point is, and, and I'm kind of making fun here a little bit, but the point is that we have, in the 21st century, gods that are really not any different than the gods that they worshipped in the ancient world. We worship gods that we have made ourselves. Ideas, philosophies, creeds. We worship gods that we have created, we have fashioned. Gods who are really nothingness. That's why the message of salvation, that's why the message of Yahweh who is great and greatly to be praised, that message needs to be heard everywhere. Because we still worship gods who are nothing. Now what is the alternative to worshiping the gods that we have made that add up to nothing at all? And the psalmist explains it to us here in verse 5. He says, all the gods of the peoples are idols. They are nothing. But on the other hand, he says, the Lord, Yahweh, made the heavens. The alternative to worshiping all of these nothing gods is to worship the Lord who made everything. Again, we've said this before, but is it any wonder that the doctrine of creation is one of the most mocked and rejected doctrines today? Even among professing Christians. This psalm makes it very clear that recognizing that Yahweh, the Lord, is the creator, is what separates him from all of those nothing gods. And what happens when we're worshiping a nothing God and the truth about the Lord as creator comes crashing in and our nothing God comes under attack. How do we tend to respond when our nothing God comes under attack by the very fact that he created nothing and he himself is part of the substance that has been created by the true God? How do we react when our nothing God comes under attack? I think you know. When that happens, we go on the attack. You see, at that point, my nothing God must be defended. He certainly can't defend himself. So I have to defend him, which means I must tear down this God who created the heavens. He cannot be the creator, because if he's the creator, then my nothing God is really a nothing God. And I can't accept that. That's what the psalmist, this, what this psalm reveals to us here, is we have this that once again, this choice presented to us, either we will believe in the God who made the heavens or we will believe in a nothing God. There is no other alternative, contrary to what many people will claim. The Lord made the heavens. And because he made the heavens, that is proof that all of the other gods are nothing. Interesting, because he goes on then, this Lord who made the heavens. Notice verse 6. Honor and majesty are before him. Beauty and strength are in his sanctuary. These are interesting words. All four of these words really seem to emphasize the outward appearance. We don't think about God having an outward appearance. We read the Bible and we read that God is a spirit. And we, we try to understand that. That's difficult to figure because everything we can think of and imagine and know of every person we've ever met or can come up with has some sort of physical manifestation some sort of physical existence and and to have a god who doesn't have that is very difficult for us to to fathom and yet that's the bible tells us that god is a spirit and so this emphasis on the outward appearance seems kind of strange that god would be described here by an outward appearance 
And yet, the terms here are, are worth noting. Honor and majesty. These are before him or in, in front of him. These, these are what are displayed by his face. If you could look upon his face, what you would see is you would see honor and majesty. And these two words are, are practically synonyms. Um, it, they, they're, they're used, and these two words, honor and majesty, are used several times throughout the Old Testament in this exact same construction uh, in the original language, these two words tied together the same way, and they're used to describe uh, the, the amazing glory of God. It, it's almost like one word wasn't enough, so we repeat the synonym just because we, just, we can't just say he's, that honor is before him. We have to kind of say, well, it's honor and majesty. We've got we to have somehow kind of emphasize it. We need, to, we need to emphasize just how majestic and splendid he is in his appearance. And so one word won't do. We've got to repeat it, basically. It's kind of the idea. And there aren't a lot of times in the Bible, but there are some times where, where someone does see a vision of the Lord in his glory. You might be familiar with some of them. Moses seeing God's glory passing by you know, as he's being hidden there in the cleft of the rock. Or, or you could think Isaiah, Isaiah 6, where he sees the vision of the Lord high and lifted up. Of course, you have the New Testament disciples who saw Jesus on the day of the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember Peter, James, and John who saw Jesus revealed in all of his, uh, his divine glory. Um, and of course, you have the Apostle John who sees visions of God in heaven, in glory, and that, you know, these incredible visions. But I want to share with you really quickly here just one of these visions from the prophet Ezekiel who, who saw the Lord's throne coming down from heaven uh, uh, to the earth. Right? In the first chapter of Ezekiel, he sees the throne of God coming down. And the whole chapter describes what he sees. And I'm just going to want to just look or share with you just the very end, at the end of that first chapter, here's what Ezekiel writes. Now he's focusing on, on the throne itself. Okay? So his, his attention, he's looked at everything around the throne and under the throne and it's coming down. Now he's looking at the throne of God itself. And here's what he says. He says, Above the firmament, over their heads, was the likeness of a throne. In, a, in appearance like a sapphire stone. On the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Also from the appearance of his waist upward, I saw as it were the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around it. And from the appearance of his waist downward, I saw as it were the appearance of fire with brightness all around it. You're getting a little bit of a picture in your mind here of what he's trying to describe. And then notice what he says. He says, it's like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. The best that Ezekiel could put it into human terminology, that's what he describes. The vision of the glory of the Lord. Charles Spurgeon says of the honor and majesty of the Lord that men can but mimic these things. Now think about it. We put on shows and, and, and ceremonies hoping that in some way we can capture just a little sense of glory for ourselves. Spurgeon says these are just a pretense of greatness. We're just putting on a show. They're not real. There's no real glory there. Even the king, even the earthly king, when he puts on his robes, it's a robe he puts on. It's not himself. The Lord, honor and majesty, this majestic glory, the glory belongs to God and to God alone. On the other hand, our gods are like the cheap knockoffs that get sold as you know, designer, quote-unquote, watches and purses, uh, you know, on the streets of New York City. By the way, if you ever go there, don't, don't believe them when they tell you they're real. It's not Gucci, whatever they say. It's just not, okay? We fake these things. We mimic these things because God is glorious. He's the definition of glory. You want to know glory and majesty, look at God. And you'll see on his face 
honor and majesty, the psalmist says. Then he says, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. It's interesting. It's not just that God is strong or beautiful. These attributes are not exclusive in God. They don't conflict with one another. It's not either or. He's both at the same time. His sanctuary, that's his dwelling place, his palace. Right? Whether we're talking about his, his, his home in heaven or even the temple on earth, which was his dwelling place here. In both cases, adorned with power and with beautiful ornamentation. That's the picture here. And again, they're not just decorations that he puts on. These are his very nature. Spurgeon says, of these two attributes, we have seen rugged strength devoid of beauty. We have also seen elegance without strength. But he says that if we want to see both of them in a glance, we must look to the eternal throne. You see, these aren't tricks that God plays. They're not gimmicks. He doesn't, you know, it's not like a a movie maker where he's in a green room with a, a special suit on and they film him and then they just kind of computerize the graphics around him. That's not the way this is. This this is God and His very nature and His very person. He, he radiates honor and majesty and strength and beauty. All of these at the same time. They flow out of His person and His nature. So here's a question for you. Do you want to sing a new song to the Lord? Just take some time meditating on His honor and His majesty and His strength and His beauty. This is the song that we're supposed to sing to him and it's the message that we're supposed to preach to the nations and the tribes of the world. If you know the Lord, declare his salvation to all the earth from day to day. This song of praise ought to be on your lips. It should spring forth from your mouth easily with joy and gladness. There ought to be a living hope in your heart Because you're meeting with the Lord, you're walking with Him, you're talking with Him, you're communing with Him on a daily basis. And so it should become natural for you to speak of the glory and of the majesty of God. The one who made the heavens, in contrast to all the worthless and empty idols of this world. This first stanza, verses 1-6, through is focused all on our speech and our singing. And so I want to encourage you this morning to examine your words, examine the song of your heart today. What does it tell you about your current relationship with the Lord? Do you need to confess sin and get right with Him so that you can once again enjoy fellowship? Do it. Deal with that. The sooner the better. Do you need to have your heart stirred aflame and, and, and the enthusiasm kindled again within you so that you can sing and rejoice and spend some time meditating on Him, what He has done and who He is. Allow His Spirit to stir your heart again with love and excitement. Do you need to be bold in proclaiming His salvation and declaring His glory among the nations? Remember that all of the gods of the world are nothing. Whatever their perceived strength, whatever their perceived power, it is nothing. The Lord made the heavens. I encourage you this morning to examine yourself and respond to the psalmist's call to sing a new song. Now I said at the beginning of the message that we would focus on those who are here today who already know the Lord already have fellowship with him. Um, I also, well, I I didn't say we were going to finish the psalm today, but um, we'll finish the psalm next week. But I do want to explain to you briefly those of you maybe who are here who have never trusted in Christ, who don't know him as your Savior, who, who don't have a relationship with God. You don't have fellowship with God. You can't sing a new song, can't sing an old song, can't sing any song to the Lord. And why would you? You don't know him. There's no reason for you to sing to the Lord. Well, the message from Psalm 96 for you is this, your gods, whatever those things are that you revere, whatever that thing is that you're seeking right now that you hope will fill you, that you hope will satisfy you, those gods are nothing. Whatever you think will bring you happiness, 
and fulfillment. Maybe it's being accepted by others. Maybe it's receiving pleasure or wealth or power. Whatever it is, it's just an idol. It is nothingness. It's something you've created in your own heart. It's worthless and it's powerless. On the other hand, the Lord God made the heavens. He's the creator. He's the ruler of the universe. And if you want to know true honor, majesty, beauty, and strength, you need to know him. You need to put down your idols and seek him before it's too late. He is great. He is glorious. He's worthy of praise and honor. At the same time, he's a savior. He offers salvation to all who will turn from their idols and trust in him alone. What will you do today? Will you give up your empty pursuit of your own gods to worship him? Will you give up trying to make yourself acceptable to him? Will you cry out to him for mercy and forgiveness, for comfort and for peace? Will you pray to the Lord today and ask him to save you from your sins? This is the message for you from Psalm 96, 1 through 6 today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we're reminded as we study this psalm that in our heart of hearts, we know the truth. We know you're the creator. We know you've made everything. We know that we are weak and powerless. We certainly have no power to overcome you, to rule ourselves. And yet we are stubborn and committed to our own way. Lord, I pray today that you would break our hearts, break our will, cause us to turn to you in repentance. Lord, if there's someone here who's never trusted in Christ, I pray that today they would realize that they are following after, clinging desperately to gods that add up to nothing. We need to release those things, let those things go, instead turn and take hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would help us to turn to you today. I pray that you'd help us as your people, those who are already Christians here today, that we would sing and worship you with hearts that are, are, are in tune with you because we're fellowshipping with you. And if there's anything that's come in the way of that, I pray that you'd help us to deal with that quickly, that we might be able to worship you as you ought to be. Give you the thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen.